0: Joining me in the following presentation is my co-host, Dr. Robert Schmidt. Rob is the director of Tauu Meditation Center and founder with myself and Jim Wilson of Mini Rivers Books and Tea in Sebastopol, California. This week on the show, we feature a pre-recorded conversation with Zoketsu Norman Fisher and Ken McLeod, framed by two questions. The first is whether mystics or mystically inclined practitioners have responsibilities to society and the world. And if so, what might those responsibilities be? Out of this question comes an extended exploration of what it means to be a mystic, the nature of the world in which we practice, the distinction between direction and goal in spiritual practice, and spiritual practice as learning how to die. The second question is of the great spiritual questions, for which ones have we found the answers, and for which ones do the answers remain? Out of this comes reflections on the role of questions themselves, the nature of divinity, the mystery of the passage of time, the impending meeting we all have with death, and how to prepare for death as the cessation of all conceptualization. So Ketsu Norman Fisher is an American poet, writer, and Soto Zen priest teaching and practicing in the lineage of Shunru Suzuki. He is the Dharma heir of Sojun Mel Weitzman, from whom he received Dharma Transmission in 1988. Fisher served as co abbot of the San Francisco Zen Center from 1995 to 2000, after which he founded the Everyday Zen Foundation in 2000, a network of Buddhist practice groups and projects in Canada, the United States, and Mexico. Fisher has published more than 25 books of poetry and nonfiction, as well as numerous poems, essays and articles in Buddhist magazines and poetry journals. His most recent book is The World Could Be Otherwise, Imagination and the Bodhisattva Path. After learning Tibetan, Kin McLeod translated for his principal teacher, Kalu Rinpoche, and helped to develop Rinpoche's centers in North America and Europe. In 1985, Kelo Rinpoche authorized Kinn to teach and placed him in charge of his Los Angeles center. Faced with the challenges of teaching in a major metropolis, Kinn began exploring different methods and formats for working with students. He moved away from both the teacher center model and the minister church model and developed a consultant client model. Kinn is the founder and director of unfetteredmind.org. He is the author of Wake Up to Your Life, Discovering the Buddhist Path of Attention, The Great Path of Awakening, An Arrow to the Heart, Reflections on Silver River, and his most recent book, A Trackless Path. Norman Fisher and Ken McLeod, welcome back to The Mystical Positivist.
1: Good to be here.
2: Well, it's great to have you again. And um, in our interesting times, um, uh, one of the questions that occurred to me that would be fun to discuss is the question of whether spiritual pr- practitioners or mystics have responsibilities to society. It's certainly a, a topic that has been rooted about uh, In it certainly was uh, something that the Taoists, as I understand, uh, addressed, whether people need to uh, withdraw from society to fulfill obligations or responsibilities to society. Other traditions, of course, take different um, approaches. But here we are in the uh, 21st century. Conditions are quite different. And and I'm wondering what you guys have to say in response to the uh, possibility that uh, mystics have responsibilities to society and what those responsibilities would be. How to... How to con- Um, how to uh, map them, um, how to deeply describe some of the possible ways in which that could be true. Um, so I look forward to hearing your thoughts.
1: Well, I guess the first question that comes to mind, as individuals or as mystics,
2: okay so mystics are non individuals by the uh, uh, in that framing it sounds like
3: and and i, I kind
1: of i kind of get how that could be but it's not so much as uh i'm not i'm not working with the exclusive or here okay. so so
4: you're you're okay. saying like uh, does an individual have a uh obligation to engage in society that's distinct from one as a uh, as a practitioner of mysticism or as a mystic
1: actually reversed i think you're on the right track i would reversed the question does a mystic have a responsibility to society that is different from his responsibility or her responsibility as an individual
2: that's 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 uh uh, that's clarifying thank you
1: your turn norm
3: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, well well uh i hate to, i hate to say it but uh i need to understand all the terms in that question <laughs> like what is a mystic you know, what is an individual <laughs> what is well i mean uh what is a mystic and and what what do we mean by society and so on and so on but i mean uh like do we are we distinguishing between uh, a mystic and a, a Deeply reflective spiritual practitioner, I mean or are we saying do we mean do we mean that a mystic is is anyone who is totally devoted to spiritual practice on an experiential level uh, because um, the sort of term imply almost the question almost implies that a mystic is a kind of a hermit uh, which may or may not be true, and certainly a person who practices spirituality deeply may or may not be a hermit uh, and would we call that person a mystic so i'm not sure exactly what we mean but let's say this way in my way of looking at it uh because i don't really use the word mystic that much and that's why i'm not entirely clear about it but for my money so to speak um somebody anybody who is fully devoted to spiritual practice, who sees their life from the perspective of spiritual practice. That's what I'm doing spiritual practice. I may look like I'm doing a bunch of other stuff, but in my mind, it's all in the service of my spiritual practice. To me, that's how I would see a mystic. And that could include someone who's in a cave, you know, for a three year retreat or a lifetime retreat. And that could also include someone who is very, engaged in the world so there'd be a whole range of of uh what i would how i would understand the word mystic uh, maybe like mo- like monk or monastic would be similar m- meaning dedicated fully to one thing monk monastic mystic to me that's what it what it means and so uh so i think that um uh, that insofar as and again you know there's everybody has their own way of looking at this but to me that is the the proposition the, the, the full engagement in spiritual practice is is full engagement in what is this human life at its most fundamental level and what is this human life certainly involves others in the world how does it not there's no isolated you know atomized individual so uh to me by definition right being a fully engaged fully committed spiritual practitioner means that you're fully engaged with the world and then the next question is what's the world (laughs) you could be to me i think you could be fully engaged with the world in a cave for 50 years fully engaged in the world uh so what is the world? That's actually a, a Zen koan. You know, what do you call the world? What is the world? It's not so clear what the world is. I mean, I think in our secular society, we define the world as meaning, you know, the newspaper and the corporation or something. But is that the world? So,
4: what oh, does it mean? What does it mean to be engaged?
3: Yeah, what does it mean to be engaged? So, so yes, it's for me the answer to the question is very simply yes. A, a mystic is fully engaged in the world, but then. What is the world, and what is a mystic? So if uh, so, I've defined a a mystic, but then uh, in my way. But then, uh, what is the world? Well, I I like I like
2: your articulation of um, what, to me, I I thought of when I formulated the question were two overlapping sets of uh, because I I use the word mystic because uh, Ken has been fond of it. Yes. And, and I don't, I don't have a, a a problem with it. In fact, I, I like it, but yeah. I don't, I don't want, I didn't want to, the reason I used both terms is precisely that um, I do see them as overlapping it, it, minimally overlapping and possibly um, um, fully um, the same, depending on how you, how you want to look at it. But I'm glad that you've, that you've, Pointed to the world and the definition of that of that term, because that it seems to me is one of the ways in which the um, engagement of someone who's fully committed to spiritual practice um, understands what how they're how they're um, touching the world, offering something. Um, to the world beyond the confines of their their own personal needs and interests mm-hmm. and i think and I think that's that 's the area where where classically there 's been um, there have been different views about how that how that can happen, and so I guess you know I would invite us to talk about that second part of what you pointed to the world, and, and how we engage with the world.
0: So
4: because I, I think that's key.
0: Let's have Ken uh, jump in here.
3: Yeah, I'd like to have Ken say, maybe if, if you want to, uh, is there a, is, is, is your, in your view, is, the, is a mystic a special set of fully engaged spiritual practitioners, or, or are they the same thing? I would be.
1: Uh, I'm going to respond to both parts um, of your, your question, Norm. And also uh, what Rob uh, invited me to uh, uh, talk about the world, uh, so first, uh, I usually use the term mystic uh, to denote what I think is a a bit something a bit more specific than a, a person who's fully engaged in spiritual practice, though so I think this would be a topic for discussion in itself. Uh, And and the definition that I've uh, come to myself and I've advanced to you at some of our earlier meetings is a mystic is a a person who seeks a relationship with life, uh, life in a very broad sense, uh, which is not mediated by the conceptual mind. Uh, I'm not sure that all spiritual practitioners seek that. I'm not sure about that. Uh, so that's the differentiation I'm making. Uh, <clears throat> whether Rob and Stuart go along with that or not, I don't know, but they can comment on that in a minute. The with respect to the world, uh, I think I think it's very uh, good. I mean Rob originally phrased the question in terms of society and now we broaden it to the world. But I, I think that, that actually is a good broadening. Uh, there are two thoughts which came to mind uh, when, when uh, as, as you and Rob were discussing this, and, and the first was from Uchiyama Roshi, distinguishing between the world in which you cannot exchange or trade anything and the world in which you can. Trade and exchange things, uh, and we we cannot trade or exchange our own experience. Not, I used to when I was teaching, I would have hand out co- chocolate chip cookies, and say, "We we have no idea whether we have the same experience or the same taste or whatever. We, we can't we can't exchange those. <clears throat> they're not articles for trade. But a more recent uh, distinction came from a quotation that a friend of mine sent to me from Pope Francis. Pope Francis said, uh, apparently, uh, I think with respect to the pandemic, God always forgives, we sometimes forgive, nature never forgives.
3: Hmm.
1: Now, I take issue with the word forgiveness for various reasons, and we don't need to go into that. But When I read that, I went, oh my goodness. We live in three worlds simultaneously. And very broadly speaking, one is the world of the mind slash spirit. The second is the world of society and human interaction and communication. And third is we are animals existing in the world of nature. And it struck me that each of these three worlds has its own way of functioning and its own way of being understood, own way of relating. And so many problems arise for us because we try to apply the way of one world to another, which always doesn't work very well. (laughs) I mean, famous example trying to apply uh, evolutionary theory eugenics to human society Mm, doesn't produce good results Mm -hmm. and we see the same thing whenever we try to apply the mythic which belongs to the world of the mind and spirit when we try to apply that to human society we try to make the myth reality that also doesn't work very (laughs) well So, uh, and, and we could come up with other examples. So in response to your question, the world, well, I think we have to think about three different worlds because we're going to, uh, and what are the responsibilities within each of those worlds?
4: So there's a couple of things I'd like to respond to the the question and it, because it ties partly into the, the assertion of what how you construe the mystical or the mystic. Um, when you say that uh it's living a life that's not mediated by the conceptual I've tended to agree with that when you've expressed that before, but I was thinking of it in terms of a fourth way analysis. Uh and in, you know uh famously in the fourth way there's the analysis of the human organism as consisting of three semi or largely independent brains. Uh, an intellectual and thinking center, an emotional feeling center, and a uh moving and instinctive center. And that the brains uh have are very different. They uh in the in the plight of ordinary human existence, they tend not to talk to each other. And as such, one's functioning tends to be a stochastic uh bouncing between stimulus and response. And the project of work is to harmonize the centers such that one can have, in the same sense that you, you're playing a chord, you can uh, uh, simultaneously participate in the presentation of the moment through all three centers. And, and so with that analysis, I, I would almost want to correct your uh, assertion and say that the mystical is a uh, uh, living life that is not exclusively dominated by the conceptual. And and exactly. in that in that sense, it's 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 not that the conceptual is bad or good. It's just that it's a channel, and uh, uh, when it's treated as the only thing, it leads to a kind of a disconnection. And so, in that sense, I would construe fully participating in the world as being in my body, being. Sensitive and responsive to my feelings and being aware of the distinctions that my mind are throwing up, but not necessarily being identified with them so mm-hmm. i guess I guess in that sense your your analysis of the three worlds uh to you know i I can't help but associate that with the uh, notion of experiencing through the three centers
1: mm-hmm. well an analogy sort of presents itself there, doesn't it Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I I, I take your uh, point. And part of the reason, possibly, that I offered that definition originally is that one really, for most of us, I think, probably not for everybody, but for most of us, we actually have to develop the capacity to relate to the world. Unmediated by the conceptual mind, it's not something that uh, most of us have. Yeah. Or we may have had it when we were a child, but we tend to lose it as we grow up. And then there's a recovery process, perhaps, I, you know, something like that. I, I, but I, saying that, I, I don't think that that's the case for absolutely everybody. I think people who have spiritual talent, uh, you know, maintain a connection with it in the same way that say artists do. Well,
3: I, I'm appreciating the, the these, um, all of this is clarifying conceptually about what what are we talking about. So now, now I I see that uh, we're saying, and I and I easily can see this that that um, by mystic we mean something more specific than full dedication to spiritual practice. So I I, I get that and I and I see what Ken is saying um and i think the three yes i, I felt in in, in description of ken's description of the pope's three worlds and stewart's uh, somewhat variant definition uh, there's a resonance there and it all makes sense to me so uh so if a mystic is someone who is um it's almost like a mystic is a is a spiritual virtuoso, you know, one who is uh, really plunging into the deepest, the deep end, you know, of the pool of spirituality. Uh, really trying to get beyond the usual human setup, which is entirely conceptual, to a, as Ken puts it, more unmediated. Uh, relationship to reality, although I, I'm somewhat doubtful about the possibility for a human being, as we understand a human being who's alive, to be in an unmediated, uh, in a, living in a reality unmediated <laughs> conceptuality, and that's kind of what Stuart was saying, I think, that it's not a matter of completely overthrowing conceptuality so much as it is a matter of understanding conceptuality. Uh, standing within it in a different way, less of a knee-jerk way, and more of a sort of wonderment or open way. That's how I would look at it. So, if all that, if now we're more on the same page and figured out our definitions, then the, the next question is: Then, what? What such a person then would really be in a quite a different relationship to whether we want both society as a specific take on the world and the world as a bigger question that, that, that the person who is a mystic would be in a radically different relationship to those things because society and the world are both conceptual productions. So if a mystic is someone who's standing in a radically different relationship, whether we agree with Ken and say totally unmediated by conceptuality or whether we agree with Stuart and say, well, Differently, differently uh, moved by conceptuality. In any case, that person is in, living in a different world. What the world is is quite different from for that person than for uh, an, another person. And um, so, perhaps another way of looking at this, and, and I'm putting out a question here, maybe. One way of asking this question is, what responsibility does a mystic have to those, both natural objects and human objects, that are not mystics? That are not engaged in the same... Not engaged in in that procedure. Does a mystic have any any responsibility or any relationship to all of that or 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 and, and if so what so that 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 becomes now the question for me well, thank
1: you for that norman and this uh your your question stimulates a, another line of thought I had when uh after Rob sent out this uh, possibility in an email yesterday uh And and I think you phrased it very well. Uh, One of the frameworks that I've used a lot, uh, both in my teaching and also in my business consulting, is that, uh, and I think it comes from Chinese sources, but I I haven't been able to track down an actual source for it, is that we have... uh, as human beings, we have uh, we relate to our world. and Let's leave our world undefined at this point, just very broad context uh, understanding. Uh, in three very different ways. Um, these are not mutually exclusive, and they can all be operating at the same time. Uh, the first is as a transaction. And uh, think of it. Trading, giving stuff back and forth. Uh, And that doesn't have to be material stuff. It can also, some people have transactional, emotional relationships, things like that. A second way is uh, relating uh, to people um, to do something that we cannot do by ourselves. So it's a shared aim or something like that. And the third is. an emotional connection where we, in, in, in terms of other people, <laughs> relating to them, not because we're are change, exchanging something with them, not because we're trying to do anything, we just want that person in our life, or you know, there's something there. and. Uh, And I'm wondering how that framework or where responsibility fits in that framework, or maybe it fits in all three, but the responsibilities are different. So that's what I'd like to explore.
2: Can you articulate a little, uh, again, the the distinction between those last
1: two categories? Because I wasn't quite entirely clear about that. Let's take marriage as an example. Uh, There needs to be an emotional connection in a marriage. Okay, uh, and basically you just want to be with that person. You, 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 uh, there's something there and there's a feeling of connection or what have you, and, the, and it's very meaningful, something very important. The purpose of marriage or in, in many contexts or traditional societies, so forth is to raise a family, which is not something you can do by yourself. Uh, And then there's also all kinds of economic benefits uh, and uh, material benefits, which come from, I mean, you have one house, so you don't have the expenses of trying to maintain two different shelters. I mean, just to be very...
3: Until you get divorced. (laughs) (laughs) That's that's
2: peculiar to our society, mostly.
1: (laughs) uh, You know, and uh, a lot of conflict arises because people do not share the same view of the uh, the fundamental view of the relationship. So you take in say an art gallery owner and an artist. Well, from the artist's point of view, it's a shared aim relationship, get his or her art out into the world. From the gallery owner's point of view, it's a business. We're both gonna make money out of this. (laughs) And and and, the, and an awful lot of conflict arises right out of that. I had one of my students as a consultant uh, for governments in the South Pacific. And she used this framework to analyze the difficulties that Austra- the Australian and New Zealand governments were experiencing with their relationship with si- islands in the South Pacific. And it all came down to they had fundamentally different views of what the basis of the relationship was. Hmm. I'll give you a better example.
2: Yeah, <clears throat> yeah, that helps. I mean, it's still all, <clears throat> excuse me, it's still all in the, mostly in the emotional realm, which is it, which is, which I want to explore. I mean, what those responsibilities would be. And I appreciate that depending on the relationship, they could be different. That's important.
1: Yeah. Well, let, let, let's, let's take our, you know, uh if the mystic partakes in the society and say um, let's say it's in canada and has a uh, gets uh free medical treatment
3: mm-hmm.
1: then it's it, i would presume the mystic had a responsibility to the society in some way because it's, it's, it's uh, he's he or she's receiving something quite concrete okay uh If the mystic wants to uh, build a uh, a school or a uh, place of worship or something like that, then he or she's gonna join with other peoples, not something they can do by themselves. And then there's the pursuit of relationships with other mystics simply because they like being together, like Jim's Quaker meetings and so forth, which is, Something different. So, uh, uh, does that give you a bit of a clarification? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And I think the responsibilities are different in those, in all cases. Right. So, is there?
2: Um, I mean, we're you're, you're focusing on the human world here. Uh, it. My question is: is there is there a way to conceptualize the responsibility or responsibilities of the mystic? to the broader world um, that that Norman uh, brought in earlier.
1: I'm gonna let Norman answer that question.
3: (laughs) Well, um, I guess uh, my understanding of what would, of what a mystic is coming to in overcoming to whatever extent it's possible living in a world mediated by conceptuality. So, so the mystic is trying to see through that. And I think one of the biggest conceptions is, you know, separation and individuality and conflict. Those are all conceptually driven setups. So to me, uh, and, and I think the world great, are the great religions of the world Seem to be more or less in agreement that when we do um, leap over our world, mediated entirely by conceptualization, we come to a kind of uh, sense of a wideness, uh, almost an unlimited sense of identity. So the mystic is, you know, un- in union with the universe, in union with the world. Mm -hmm. union or oneness right is one of the big themes of mysticism all over the world although its terminology can be different essentially i think that's it's very similar in that and and therefore there's a kind of sense of universal responsibility i i i am taking care of myself i am all this all around me so to me the the sense of responsibility of a a mystic is uh, unlimited. However, then what does that then, so that's a feeling, that's an understanding, then what does that look like in terms of action? And can the mystics articulation of expression of responsibility be understood by the non-mystic? in the, same way that the non-mystic would understand their responsibility and I think maybe perhaps not perhaps <clears throat> you know I, I, I fully can understand uh, someone you know let's say who's deeply immersed in prayer from a mystical perspective feeling that they are repairing the the broken world right now in their Moment of prayer, and that this would be truly so. This would be truly my uh, my art, the articulation of my total responsibility to the world is right here, being enacted in my prayer. That the mystic could truly feel that that's so, whereas somebody coming along could say that lazy bum. You know, there there they are in their in their ashram praying, they should be out here, you know, like cleaning up the street, what's wrong with them? So that, there's that kind of phenomenon. But I think that um, most mystics, I think, end up doing both. Moved by that prayer, they, in which they may feel they have totally repaired the world and they would then probably get up and go out and clean up the street as well. So I think that uh, in that sense, There's both senses of responsibility. Lately, you know, with all the politics and the COVID and everything I've been, and I, you know, I have a community that I'm in touch with all the time. And so I've been talking about this with the community a lot and saying that um, the thing is that that the advantage of being a mystic, to use that terminology, which I don't use in my community, but the advantage of being a mystic is that you can clean up the street Endlessly, even though other people are throwing crap all over it faster than you can clean it up, you can clean it up endlessly and not get discouraged about it because as a mystic, you have a different perspective. Whereas as a non-mystic, it can be very discouraging when you try to clean up the street and they're throwing 10 times more crap into it every day than you could possibly clean up. It's really, it's a recipe for despair and, and you know, uh, total oh in action whereas a mystic can do the same work with a better spirit because of the difference in view caused by their mystical uh, efforts I I wanted
4: to throw in as you were saying this uh, a question came up for me that's you know if I use an analogy it might be clear if I talk about a musician you know uh, an accomplished musician we typically don't ask what the musician is going to play where we typically are about how, how, what is the feeling of what the musicians played? Or we're, we're more about the, how the musician is expressing and appreciating the, the, the subtlety of the expression. And I guess I, if I apply that to a mystic, the question that's more operative is less about what the mystic does as how the mystic does it which I think gets back to your point about how do you, how is it that you sweep the street and someone's throwing garbage on it and yet you can be completely content? That how is a lot more interesting a question than the fact that they're cleaning graffiti, sweeping a street, praying in an ashram or something like that.
1: Well, I really like Norm's uh, example there. Um, because I think, I think it's very clear. And uh, it speaks to me uh, very much of what we hear in spiritual practice all the time, which Uchiyama uh, Roshi makes a point of talking about, and that is doing something without a sense of goal. And so uh, for the mystic uh, who's sweeping the street, the activity uh, is, is sweep the street. And whether there's more or less garbage on the street is irrelevant because the activity is sweeping the street. Uh, And and it points to a a life of meaning without goal, which is, I think very different from how, you know, most people in society say approach life where it's very much about achieving something. Mm -hmm. Uh, Then there was another thought what was your last comment to it? Because that's what triggered.
4: It was, it was a distinction between uh, what and how. So having a goal is like a what. What, yeah. Not having a goal and functioning is is more a how.
3: Yeah, and goals are always conceptualized. Yeah. Back to uh, Ken's yeah. definition of a mystic. Goal goals are always uh, a conceptual setup, and, and goallessness is going beyond the conceptual.
1: But, but I think a point here uh, comes up here is that in society, it would be unrealistic to have everybody live without goals. <laughs> uh, it, 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 it wouldn't work very well. Uh, and uh, there's another strain of thought on, oh yes. Um, When you're saying that the uh, mystic and prayer feels like they're repairing the world, you remind me, I think of it, I can't remember that Susan Sontag or uh, Sondheim said this, Uh, but pointing out that, and I think this bears very much on some of the political ideology that we, uh, that is uh, in action right now. Uh, From a mystical point of view, the value of a person's life on the other side of the planet is uh, equally as valuable and important as uh, your child's or something like that. But that is not how human society lives. And that's why I wanted to make this distinction between these different kinds of relationship, because in human society, well, we have people who belong to the society and agree to live by those that particular society's more age or whatever, and the people who don't, and you get into that. And if you try to apply the mystical to that, we get into a lot of trouble very quickly.
4: There are uh, people like Steven Pinker, I think, and uh, Will McCaskill who are radical altruists who challenge people on that very point that you know if someone on the other side of the world is equally important to you then you should organize your life and your finances accordingly and most of us don't do that and the question is is that does that represent a more enlightened mystical point of view or is that a um just a particular species of action. And again, you know, the analysis is, are you an altruist and not identified or are you identified
1: as an altruist? And um, you see, I would say referring back to the three worlds framework that I mentioned earlier that what Pinker and others are doing is trying to apply a mystical understanding to the world of human society. And this never works. Karen Armstrong details this in *The Battle for God, saying that whenever you try to do this, you try to bring the mythos into the world of logos, you always end with disaster. You always end with a totalitarian state, among other things.
4: So I have a a question along these lines that um, I've been wrestling with and looking at. And Ken, you've seen some examples of this in some emails that we exchanged and that's in the the fourth way notion there there's a a statement of obligation or duty that we have intrinsically as beings and you know as as gurdjieff would say as three brain beings and there's a a neologism for this being park dog duty which basically sounds strange but is Armenian for duty, Russian for duty, and English for duty. So it's being duty, duty, duty. And it's the duty of our minds, the duty of our hearts, and the duty of our bodies. But in that system, there's the for someone to be a full human being, there's an obligation that we have. And that obligation is to overcome suggestibility in each of these centers, to overcome identification to be responsive, and allow to flow through us divine will. So I'm just interested for both of you, if you agree or disagree with this notion that as uh, 3 brain beings or as humans uh, in a spiritual path, there's a a unique obligation that everybody shares. Everyone may not realize it, but there's an, an obligation to pay for our existence in the universe in a certain kind of way.
1: Well, this goes back to those three frameworks of relationships I was discussing about, but uh, I would, I'd like to hear from Norm on this, but I, what I'll throw out is that, uh, damn, I keep losing my train of thought now. Uh, yes, uh, we have these three worlds, we have these say three different responsibilities to these three worlds, there is no guarantee that those responsibilities may not come into a pretty intense conflict. And uh, and that, how do we resolve that? <laughs> because sometimes there just aren't good ways to resolve it. Uh, and, uh, and we have to learn uh, how to live with that. This is Isaiah Berlin's idea of conflicting goods uh, and the idea that there is always a good solution, I think is one of the one of the problematic myths that uh, people in our society live with hmm. norm your thoughts
3: yeah well i'm going to uh, start with going back to what Stuart just said uh, yes i i, I agree uh, that uh that ingrained in us as humans is whether or not we are in touch with it is this sense of awesome responsibility for the world i think that to me that that is a place that we would come to as a result of our mystical endeavors we would come to a place of recognizing you know identity with and total responsibility for uh, the world and so uh, we were talking a few moments ago about uh, goalless activity or purposelessness. Um, another way of understanding that same idea is to say that our goal and our purpose is so immense that it is identical with purposelessness. That, in other words- uh, getting what, a lot of confused end for me, Norm. <laughs> no, no, I mean, no, in other words, what i like and i and i actually feel this quite personally and psychologically i feel this like what i'm after is so big right and so impossible for me ever to achieve you know in the normal definitions of achievement that i might as well say there's nothing i'm after it's so big i'm not going to so uh you know i want you know Uh, let's say i'm writing poems which i do a lot i really am after the perfect poem the transcendental perfect poem every poem i've ever written is a total failure because of that and the only way that i could keep going is by having a sense of purposelessness i'm just writing poems you know i'm not going to worry about whether i win a prize or blah blah you know because what i'm after is so big that no prize would ever come close to the true goal so so in other words a goal that's without boundaries and without end is is the same thing as 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 not not a goal at all because goals by definition are some limited thing i could achieve it what i'm after is unachievable and that makes it so glorious, and that's what makes it identical with purposelessness. Now, here's the thing. Earlier, Ken was saying, yeah, we can't live up, uh, purposelessly, but I'm not so sure about that because I think we, if we could recognize the uh, provisional nature of all of our goals and not worry about it when we don't achieve them, Right. So in other words, holding at the same time a goal and also purposelessness, then I could then go about my life trying to achieve my limited goals. And when I don't, letting go, because I know that that limited goal is not my real goal anyway. Mm-hmm. So I think we can put these things together. So um, I think the idea that Ken just advanced about Goods that are at odds with one another, I think is a very important and interesting idea it's very seems very true, but at the same time, I think we can also put these things together and continue to live a life that makes sense to us with a decent enough spirit as we go about trying to fulfill this impossible responsibility that we get in touch with so this well, spiritual practice
2: this makes this what you just said, uh, Norman, really resonates for me. And the way that I've languaged it is, is um, that there's a difference between a goal, having a goal and pursuing a direction, traveling in a direction. That's the great. direction has, has that, that quality that you've just described. Of you, 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 you don't know what's at the end of the particular yellow brick road you happen to be following. But um, but you feel drawn to do that uh, powerfully, uh-huh. and and um, I guess I want to bring in here also an, an, some more language from the, from the fourth way. We were talking; was talking about these the three centers of the human organism, and in the fourth way, there are uh, it, it, there can be developed a higher emotional center and a higher intellectual um center and to me my own my own resonance with what you were saying is located at this at a, at a particular period of my life when i realized that there was a direction that i could travel even though i didn't know and still don't know if there's a uh if there's a particular end point to that direction and and coming to the place where where i could trust that and returning to that as as along the way i uh, i i um realized oh i was actually in this particular moment looking to achieve that goal and that didn't happen and then I can return to that reliance upon the sense of direction that, um, and I like, I like, I like, uh, your, uh, your formulation of its expansiveness because, um, even though our, our intellectual idea of a direction means constraint, you're constraining yourself, but actually it's, um, my experience of it is, is not to be constrained, actually.
4: Mm-hmm.
2: So, um, so this is, thank you, this is very interesting.
4: I, I have to tell a, a quick, cute story of, of, <laughs> of what my, uh, a teaching my teacher gave me at one time on this subject. Um, we had a big carboy, like a 10 gallon carboy, or five, I guess it was five gallon carboy, and my task was to fill it which is a p- big
2: container yeah, for big, listeners yeah. who don't know what that is
4: yeah it's a big glass jar so my task was to fill it with pennies and he said to me when you fill this with pennies i think you can hope to be enlightened and and so i couldn't go to the bank oh, was that pennies or pins pennies pennies oh. i i couldn't go to the bank i'm like by $10 of pennies. Occasionally uh, he was generous. We'd have like a group poker night or something and I'd get to keep the pennies and put them in the jar. <laughs> but I had this jar and, and I, and so for a long time, I was really obsessed with every penny I saw anywhere because uh, every penny I was going to, I was going to fill this jar. And I was very, very conscious of change and would kind of encourage people to give me pennies <laughs> in the store, not round up. But there came a point where, that dropped away I, re- I remember the moment where it's like I, I suddenly realized it didn't matter anymore that the pro, I was just very grateful for the process I was engaged in and, <laughs> and that was all that really mattered and, and it was said there was, it was <laughs> and I remember I can still pinpoint where I was in the house and that moment hit but it was a very clear realization of, of exactly what you were talking about that it's like the direction is all that's really important the, the goal is, is not doesn't really even mean anything
3: did you ever fill the jar up
4: yeah i did but it didn't
3: <laughs> I, yeah, well, well that
4: actually but, but that goes to the whole question of provisional goes yeah i still filled the jar and was,
3: then what happened
4: um you, you presented it to your teacher <laughs> I, I i think we ultimately like put it into bags and took it to the bank or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> it, it was actually very by right. the time it was filled it was kind of like uh, uh it didn't that mean so right. much and I
3: assume this took years. Right? Yeah, it took years. Some years. Yeah, <laughs> what a great thing! The fourth way people—you got—you can't beat them. <laughs> you, cannot, you cannot beat them for—they're uh, even more clever than the Tibetans. <laughs>
1: well, well we, that's for sure.
3: <laughs> well,
2: we have to give Ken some time here to jump in at this point.
1: <laughs> well, there's there's so many strands here, and. I, uh, I, uh, I mean, the one that's resonating for me, uh, most importantly, I think is uh, the one that Norm uh, referred to, and you picked up on Rob. Um, I think we we need direction, and then we need to also, and and goals can be very helpful in moving in that direction. But when the goal becomes the end, then we get into a, a different. Uh, situation and that's that can be a problem and so connected with norman's uh, comments i think i think the most important thing that i have learned in spiritual practice is how to die uh and i'm here i'm using it metaphorically that is um it's not that we 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 start off in a certain direction. We may have started off with a very specific goal, such as Stuart's example. Uh, and if, for whatever reason, we are unable to achieve that goal, that's a form of death. So, and being able to accept that and uh, and go on with life and go on with direct, with one's direction in life or... Maybe even rise and start in a different direction because something is impossible or impractical or whatever. I think that is one of the most important things um for people to know because it uh, it is the antidote to ideological fixation uh and and when you when you can accept that some things are unachievable or what have you then a tremendous amount of openness and flexibility and understanding and sympathy or compassion, whatever you want to call it for others, arises. And I just think it makes everything much more workable. So in
2: our uh, current political climate, uh, one, one manifestation of the uh, responsibility of the mystic might be to demonstrate that, for example, it's okay that I will never achieve not just my uh, uh, reasonable goals in the world to have. There are, you know, there are plenty of those. There's but, a
1: series that I'm watching on Netflix right now called Midnight Diner. Oh, it's fabulous, of course. And-
3: I it, haven't heard of that one, Midnight it, Diner. It, 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 oh, it it's, exemplifies
1: exactly what we're talking about. I'm thinking mm-hmm. of one episode in particular. It's about a, uh, it, it's in Japanese with English subtitles It's about a diner and the owner of a diner, just a hole-in-the-wall diner in Tokyo that is open from midnight till 7 a.m. And he has one thing on the menu, which is uh, pork miso soup. (laughs) But he makes anything you ask for if he has the ingredients. And he has these customers come in and they're playing out different facets of their life. And in one of them, this... uh, Young aspiring student, uh, very poor, uh, meets this actress who, uh, career of blossoms, and they, they, they love each other, but they, their paths, their lives go in different directions. And he comes in and talks to the uh, owner of the diner, saying, uh, I guess a beautiful woman like rich men, because he marries CEO or something like that. And he says, she came to, he says to her, uh, to him, he says, she came to say goodbye to you. She didn't have to do that. So don't demean her love. And it was all about teaching him how to die, I thought. And I thought it was absolutely wonderful. But it, it, the show is full of things like
2: that. But by the way, he is addressed as master, Yes. Uh, rapid, yes. Rapid series.
4: It's a fabulous it, series. It is. And at I the really, end of every episode, they give you cooking tips. Right.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Whatever, because because he'll make anything, as, as Ken can right. explain, he'll make anything. The master will make anything that he has the ingredients for. Oh, but yeah. um uh so then there will be some special little little part of the episode about somebody asking for a particular dish. And it could be the simplest thing, like butter rice. Butter rice, <laughs> <Exactly>. yes. <laughs> so it's 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 well worth spending time yeah. on because because there are these little, these lovely little lessons. Yeah, it,
4: it, it's sweet. It's just very sweet and um,
1: right. But, it's, it is incredibly sweet and gentle, uh, and very, also I think quite insightful. Yeah. And the episodes are only twenty minutes long, yeah. So it's, yeah, so
4: it's a it's a good <laughs> a good digestive. Mm-hmm. <laughs> One of the things I wanted to ask uh, Norman about when you were describing this notion of uh, like the goal is so big, uh, I kept hearing the echoes of the Bodhisattva vows there. Yes, exactly.
3: Because
4: that's like how I understand. Yeah. It's as though when the aim becomes so huge and impossible, uh, all you have left is the direction. Mm
3: -hmm. Well, this seems like really important and directly related to the question we're considering because um, one i mean this is very broad and i'm sure it's all questionable but one way to look at the political world the social world that we're living in now is that it's a catastrophe created by everyone's Fixation, ideological fixation on their various goals and their frustrations with being unable to uh, bring them about. And so, uh, just like the guy in the diner, you know, the mystic maybe uh, can be of service here in living a life uh, and pointing out. Through that living and through whatever other activity she or he does, that we 've got to stop doing that 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 living life so so when you remove your some energy from the conceptual fixation on your goal you 're taking that energy and you 're creating the flexibility and the expansiveness that Ken spoke about a moment ago you 're withdrawing some energy from this. Very tight and narrow and, and essentially frustrating and even eventually violent fixation on the goal, withdrawing some energy to a sense of expansiveness, openness, and uh, dedication to a direction and and that will make uh, your social programs and interactions more like that you know and so you could really open things up quite a bit and And make the world a place in which uh, we can point in directions and do whatever we can do rather than killing each other off and the whole planet with our very tight focus on our goals and our and our necessities you know so in that way that's a very direct way that not only could could a mystic be of service but in fact you could almost say that we're suffering for lack of that mystical perspective or you know, energy from that mystical perspective being injected into our society, it, it's, it's just impossible. We really need that now.
1: This is why I was saying, uh, I agree with uh, very much what Norman's just said. That's uh, why I was saying that learning how to die uh, is one of the most important uh, things because one of the, uh, another thing that I learned through uh, teaching and consulting was that if you have to use violence to achieve your goal, your goal is not realizable in the present situation because there's always spillover effects and problems which come from the use of violence. And what you have to do is to change the setting in which you're trying to uh, to achieve those goals and then they become possible. Uh, I think one of the great examples of this is uh, Mothers Against Drunk Driving. Um, they managed to get legislation passed, but it didn't change anything. There's still lots of drunk drivers, passed in more or less every state against drunk driving, but there were still lots of drunk drivers, and they realized they had to change the society. And they set about changing the uh, moral issue around drunk driving, and that was successful. Uh, and I think it's a very good example of, of, of that uh, because you, you could have made it, you know, banned alcohol, taken us back to temper uh, the uh, uh, prohibition and everything like that. Well, that was just a source of incredible amount of violence in our society. Uh, so this business about uh, being able to... Uh, detach from achieving your goals when you recognize they're uh, not achievable in the present. Now, the other part that uh, Rob took up with Norman, I think, is very important uh, about the Bodhisattva vow. Uh, this is exactly what the story in, about Avalokiteshvara, the Bodhisattva of Compassion, that's exactly about this. He takes the Bodhisattva vow with his teacher, Amitabha Buddha, Uh, and uh, vows to work for the welfare of sentient beings. He does for three infinitely long eons. Mm -hmm. And he stops and says, wonders, how am I getting along? And says, well, things were even worse. It's like your street sweeper, Norman. (laughs) Things were even worse. And so he lapses into despair and lapsing into despair constitutes violation of the vow and his head bursts into a thousand pieces. And Amitabha comes along heels and makes those thousand pieces, the thousand arms of Chenrei Uh And the idea is that reconstituted now so that he is not subject to despair. And that I think is what you were pointing to Norman, in what you were saying, this being able to, rel- to live your life with only energy and passion, but not succumb either to uh, forcing things when it's not possible or despair when it's not possible. And, and I, I tend to agree that uh, with Norman also that uh, the, mystic, the mystical quality of understanding in some way exemplified by Midnight Banner we were just discussing uh, has been removed from our society to such an extent. It's really quite disheartening and I think it also has something to do with the inability of many people to think allegorically or metaphorically. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You want to but, say something? How's well, I, I
4: do, because uh, uh, this is a back and forth we've had and it's something that uh, I find richly expressed in uh, Gurdjieff's uh, big work, All and Everything, the tales to his grandson in the chapter on religion. And he, he speaks about the degradation of mentation in humans in the modern era, and that we've we've lost the capacity to uh, think allegorically and the way he describes that again you think of this model of the three centers that allegorical thinking is uh, co- you know conceptualization that involves is integrated with feeling whereas uh, when the feeling is uh, uh, dissociated and you just have conceptualization you get literal literal mindedness and then the ability of a literal mind to interpret uh, myths to interpret sacred texts and things like that becomes a uh, kind of a joke because it becomes all about rules and uh, uh, ridiculous behaviors and not about the integrated feeling that the uh, text is actually pointing to.
1: See, this is strikes me what people like Martin Shaw and David White and others are trying to address. Hmm. And, uh, I suppose Robert Bly and uh, Michael Mead, they're trying to address that. Nietzsche, it's interesting, because you mentioned Gurdjieff, but uh, about the same time Nietzsche was m- making the same comments that humans had lost the, or Western society had lost the ability to think allegorically. Right.
4: I mean, that certainly seems to be, you know, a highlight of the current political uh, uh, situation in the, the U.S. in terms of both sides of the divide are uh, very literal about their, their viewpoints and there isn't this kind of integrative thinking that can step out of that and hold the possibility that there's actually a bridge to another side.
2: Well, one of the things that... Um... Struck me about your comments a moment ago, Ken was your pointing out that if that if one has to resort to violence, then um, whatever agenda you're trying to enact is 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 doomed to fail because of the uh, results of that. But but it isn't just physical violence, even though um, obviously that's the worst manifestation. But but when I think of of the ways in which verbal violence sent electronically today um, in in various social media. Um, uh, when I think of the effects of that, I mean, we, we've already seen th- the near manifestation of that in the governor of the United States state um, being threatened with kidnapping in order to enact some, some political agenda. And and I think it's really important to to for the for the mystic for the bodhisattva to to demonstrate alternatives to that. In the fourth way, that's one of the, that's that's one of the key things is demonstration. He, um, the the aphorism is 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 that people learn by demonstration. They don't learn by yakety yak words. Um, in fact, as I've just you know pointed to, that can make that can make things worse, but it's it's the demonstration of the mystic and maybe the responsibility of the mystic to offer demonstration in in the tiniest ways and the largest ways um, so that uh, is important.
1: Say that again so don't tell <laughs>
2: that's right. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Exactly. Interesting because in the Tibetan tradition, anyway, that is the function of Sangha, of the Sangha.
3: Hmm.
1: The monastics were meant to demonstrate the path.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: They were the living examples.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: That, that, that was their responsibility.
3: Mm-hmm. And uh uh to get back to Netflix <laughs> <laughs> Uh, uh, I'll have to look at that program that you mentioned because all the things that my wife and I see on Netflix and, and in the pandemic times where we can't do anything else, you know, we're watching a lot of Netflix. It's really quite stunning how many of the shows do not feature a single virtuous character or even a character who feels anything. It's like, especially all these shows that have to do with politics and, you know, many shows about the British prime minister and the British government and the American government and the, and the terrorism and the spies and the, and the FBI and all these th- police and everybody. It's all about every single character in the story is pressing unscrupulously toward a goal, an end. It's usually in opposition to other sets of characters who are pursuing other ends. And they're scheming all the time. And their personal relationships are also part of the scheme. You know, they'll sleep with one another to use one another in their machinations to achieve their goals. And it's really quite unbelievable. You watch these shows and then you stop and you think to yourself, well, wait a minute. You know, are these human beings, what are they doing? Why doesn't anybody, in the, why doesn't a single character ever say, wait a minute, what am I doing here? This is not making me happy. They're obviously, none of them are happy. None of them are, there's no joy depicted. There's no happiness. There's always desperation and always this sort of like real politic, you know, effort to make the other guy lose. And I think that this is unfortunately uh, a reflection of the world we're living in.
1: Well, see, from my point of view, it means that everything has been reduced to a transactional relationship.
3: Exactly, yeah, exactly. And, and here, here is again, you know, where, where the mystic is completely out of that game, understands transactional relationships and, and understands that sometimes transaction is, is necessary mm-hmm. but doesn't, is not obsessed with transaction and realizes that transaction alone is, is death so uh yeah i mean so maybe coming back again to what what's a mystic and what's the difference between a mystic and other manifestations of spirituality of religion maybe here we could add that the mystic is the one who maximally adds to the religious project a level of reality and integrity and sincerity that the religious project could very well lack without that those virtues being injected into the system by the mystics in that system
1: well i, I would actually reverse that and say that if if a religion doesn't have mysticism at its core it's it's dead yeah and you know for exactly the reasons that you're describing.
3: Yeah. So so religion that is not necessarily a help if it doesn't have that element in it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm, in fact, I'm... in
3: fact, as we've seen, it could be a tremendous hindrance, right? Well, then you get into uh,
1: belief systems uh, and, yeah. and and the inflexibility. Uh, one of the things that we have a word we haven't used here, but I, I know that you thought about this Norman and as well as I, I've had this conversation with Robert Stewart too. Another quality I think uh, of the mystic um, is it demonstrates a relationship with the, with the mystery and that things can't be absolutely nailed down ever. Yeah, and, and there's again, there's a letting go <clears throat> in approaching life as mystery uh, it, it releases the hold on it has to be this way, because <laughs> you and, and this goes back to your um, distinction between uh, direction and goal. Uh, and one one of the devices I used in when I was in business consulting is that I'd, I'd be working with a group and they'd say, "Well, we can't do this because of this, because of this, because of this, because of this." And I would I would say to them, "Look." Uh these are all features of the landscape and they're obstacles, but you just have to navigate them because they are features of the landscape. They aren't things that actually prevent you from achieving what you want. And that shift in perspective made such a huge difference because they had to take them into account, but they re- didn't regard them as fixed blocks. Mm-hmm. And again, that speaks to the expansiveness that uh, Rob and you have talked about here, which I, I think is really important. So there's the idea of mystery and there's the idea of space, larger context in which things look different. Look different. And these are all things which, and I'm gonna bring in one other theme here. All of these ideas that we're discussing require a certain quietness in mind in order to appreciate.
3: Mm-hmm.
4: Yeah, it's a kind of a spaciousness.
2: Yeah, that well, a capacity for reflection, I mean, is it seems to me is where it starts. Um and and that in itself can be a direction. Um
3: yeah, and, and that may that may be um one way of defining practice of a mystic. That it involves space, silence mystery that that um all of which from an ordinary conceptual perceptive perce- uh, ordinary conceptual framework are totally useless and shouldn't waste your time on them <laughs> right. you know <clears throat> I was actually thinking about this this morning when I was sitting and I was thinking to myself you know this is ridiculous I'm sitting here doing nothing you know I'm just breathing you know I'm sitting here and I thought that, how can anybody do this? Because it is so boring. It's boring. You, you, couldn't, you couldn't last for more than two or three minutes before you'd get up and want to read something or do something. And I realized that the only way that you can really do it is if you, without realizing it's happening, and it happens to me whenever I sit and everybody else who sits, is that you shed that mind and you just sit there. And you forget about the fact that it's useless and stupid and all of that. And you're just sitting there. And that's there is nothing going on. And you're just breathing. And there's just space. And there's just silence. In my case, I, every, I'm i listening to the, I can hear the ocean. I can hear birds. And it's that spaciousness, that silence, that whatever it is, that is really, in effect, useless from any conceptual point of view that defines i think in all the traditions one way or the other e- even when the tradition is recitation or whatever it is it's in the service of creating that spaciousness of the mind that silence of the mind that is what to me the mystics unique contribution to society uh, to effect all these things we're talking about yeah. comes from that source i think well
4: i feel like i should throw in a chili <laughs> chili pepper from the uh, gurdjieff work um, which is that one of the elements of this being park dog duty that I referred to is conscious efforts and intentional suffering and intentional suffering Gurdjieff defines actually he puts this in, in the words of Lord Buddha in one of his uh, riffs is the willingness to endure the displeasing manifestations of others towards oneself mm-hmm. and the Idea of that is to really test this kind of spaciousness at the emotional level in relationship with people who annoy the hell out of you.
3: That's right. And, because yeah, the, the the downside of that spaciousness is that you then then become addicted to it, and you can't stand it if somebody looks at you cross-eyed, right?
4: Right. But but when when you <laughs> when you can endure, you know, the triggers and, and put yourself in positions yeah. in life that as it were, trigger you, uh, and to be present to the action of those triggers without yeah. reacting yeah. to see them, to see them fully as they uh, evolve internally, but not to give expression to the reactivity. Yeah. That yeah. that alchem that alchemical transformation makes the sitting with spaciousness all that more accessible.
3: Mm-hmm. It's funny, you know. I'm reading. I'm studying with our group. We're studying the Lotus Sutra. Mm-hmm. We studied many times before, and I'm just reading the part that says just that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's. I don't think there's any other Buddha sutra that I'm aware of. Maybe, maybe Ken is, but I, I can't think of anywhere it says. And, and the and the most wonderful thing is that you uphold and follow this sutra. And if you do that, it's very likely that people are going to get mad at you and spit on you and dislike you and give you a hard time. And that's going to happen. And and you know, that's one of the consequences of. Practicing this sutra and holding this sutra, the highest truth will make will bring you those kinds of consequences, and they're to be endured and practiced with, just as you, just as you say. Yeah. Usually in spirituality, there's a big case made for how wonderful this is going to make everything for you, right? Yeah. Just <laughs> everything's going to be great. You'll be peaceful. You'll be calm. You'll get a big car and all of this. Right? <laughs> <clears throat> goals again
2: Yeah. yeah I was
1: I was what was that? I'm still waiting for my car uh, right.
2: <laughs> <laughs> a Mercedes Benz
1: <laughs> I don't want the Mercedes
2: <laughs> no, I, I, I was just thinking of uh, the Janis Joplin song
1: <laughs> no, I, I did have a student who uh, at the time she was studying me with me was a, uh, uh, a a private banker at Bank of America, which meant that she only worked with clients who had the net worth of several million dollars. And uh, and she drove a Mercedes Benz and she completely gave up on a, one Buddhist group that she was uh, going to for sitting meditation when they had a, a long discussion one evening of whether it was um, morally acceptable within Buddhist thinking to own a Mercedes-Benz. <laughs> was, that,
4: was that pointed at her? Or was it that
1: just... I like, did not, they it. did not know that she drove a Mercedes-Benz and she she was just sitting there like, I guess I don't... This is a <laughs> helpful discussion for me. <laughs> <laughs> this is an orange county where What have you... Uh, I'm wondering if we shouldn't turn to the uh, second question at this point. We should. All right.
2: And uh, since you came up with it, Ken, I'll uh, I could read it, read what I have here in the page, but I'll let you articulate that second question. Well, uh,
1: several years ago, Stephen Batchelor suggested I read a book by Don Cupid, uh, who's a retired. I'm not sure whether he's still alive or not, uh, but uh, a retired uh, Cambridge Oxford don. Uh, and uh, it was called uh, the Great Questions, and he he make he's a, a list I think of sixteen spiritual questions, uh, and these are traditional spiritual questions. like uh where does the world come from? Uh, you know, is there a God, and on and on. Uh, and he goes through and says these ones have been answered, and uh, <laughs> uh, these these ones uh, you know they've been answered one way or another. These ones uh, no longer seem relevant and these ones remain questions. And I thought that was very interesting. So my suggestion for our conversation today was to talk about of the, of the various questions that we may have entertained ourselves, which ones have we answered? And I want answered to be understood very broadly, not just a, a conceptual answer. It may have been answered by a way of life or something like that. Uh, which ones are no longer relevant to us, and which ones are still questions. So, and Rob, since this resonated with you, I'm going to throw them all right back at you. All right.
2: right. Well, I suppose with my uh, with my uh, Catholic upbringing, the one of the questions you just mentioned, uh, I think, was, is there a God, or or something something along how to how to characterize divinity and that that continues to be actually a question for me certainly the 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 fellow sitting on the cloud with uh, uh, the beard um, doesn't i don't find very interesting that that answer, which was the answer of, of my childhood that image and my own teacher used to um, a shoe, um, characterizing what others might call God. Um, he would say the universe X, Y, or Z. And I'm, I remain in the position of inquiry about what divinity would mean for me it seems It seems to me that that there are moments when as Stuart was talking about stochastic random processes earlier, when when profoundly non-random things seem to happen, like around the moment uh, or moments around my teacher's death, actually, things happened that um, would seem highly unlikely. To have happened. And I experience them as being profoundly meaningful. And that would be an example of my accessing divinity or understanding divinity or experiencing divinity in an important way. So so, so that's an example of a, of a question that hasn't I haven't just discarded. But um, I continue to ask the question, and I think that's in, in many ways the most productive um, place to be with it. Because just because I've experienced certain things in the past that have convinced me that we're not in a an entirely random universe, that things don't just mechanical, only mechanically happen, although surely they put, there are plenty of manifestations of that in myself and others, in the actions of the world. Nevertheless, I take divinity to be something that would be larger than, than that understanding of how the universe works. So I continue to remain open to finding new expressions of divinity.
3: Norm. Hmm. Well, uh, yeah, I can't. I can't imagine <clears throat> uh, thinking that I had the answer, you know, to uh, a, an important spiritual question. Hmm. And I think what Stuart said just a moment ago—that keeping a question alive in you is uh, essential. It's an ongoing practice. I think, again, I would would say that that, sorry, is a characteristic of mysticism, is that the questions are always open and always continuously to be explored. Although it is true, though, that I, I think some of the things that I was concerned about in the past or worried about in the past in terms of my own spiritual practice. I'm no longer concerned or worried about. I don't think it's because I answered them so much as I just went on to other, other concerns, you know? So I, have, I, I definitely have a, a very different set of questions and concerns now than I did, you know, 30 or 40 years ago in my practice. But w- one of the things that comes to mind, first of all, for me, which is a continuous question that always, on an almost daily basis, literally, um, uh, just strikes me and and makes me stop in my tracks. And that is um, the passage of time. I just can't get used to it, you know, it just seems so uncanny to me that, you know, the sun comes up, I wake up in the morning, I just was waking up yesterday, and the day before, and the day before, it's like, you know, Nietzsche's eternal return, you know, it's like everything seems to be happening in a continuous present, but wait, the calendar days are going by, and I seem to be getting older. They tell me. They tell me I'm getting older. I have sensations in my body that I didn't used to have. I guess that means I'm getting older. But the whole thing, to me, doesn't hold up. Hold, hold up, and it seems so strange. It just seems really quite uh, perplexing to me that that there is time and that time passes. And then that, of course, is connected to the question I think, which was my original uh, spiritual question that I have not yet gotten over which is death you know what is that you know uh i mean what what is going on there What, what what are we going to experience or not experience or gain or lose and 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 it comes so swiftly i'm you know like back to time again i'm so conscious of the fact that i was young just a minute ago, honestly, it feels like a minute ago. <laughs> you no, know? and now I, now I mean, death, which was always such a conceptual problem for me, remains a conceptual problem. And also, it's getting very close, you know. I've already outlived everybody in my previous generation, you know, I'm older than any, my father, my mother, anybody. So, death is coming relatively soon, very soon, really. And, uh, I cannot understand it. I, I the whole thing. I remember when I was a child. It struck me. I was, you know, I was very angry with God because I thought this is not totally not fair. You have to die. What if you're really, really good and you do everything right? You still have to die. It's just not fair. And I'm still wondering, like, what is going on here? The whole thing seems to me unbelievably strange and inexplicable, and it remains an enormous question for me i'm almost looking forward to finding out the answer.
1: Maybe you don't
3: exactly <laughs> I'm looking forward to finding out that the answer is that i don't
4: <laughs> right. the question's the same on a different level
3: <laughs> right. So we will see, you know, we will see. But these things remain motivating and and strange to me. I don't understand how people can go through life <clears throat> without being shocked by by the passage of time. So I'd, that, like, I'd like to pursue this a little with you.
1: Okay. In, in a conversation with Stephen Batchelor, he once remarked that the the real miracle and is actually a quote. Uh, a, I know that Kappa said exactly the same thing. Said so The amazing thing is that there is anything at all. Yeah, yeah, right. And for you, death is the great mystery. I, somehow I think these two things are connected, but I'd, I'd like, you, I'd like to, you to talk a bit more about this, why death is such a mystery to me.
3: Why is death a mystery to me? Well, uh, because uh, I can, however much I can doubt my the 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 uh, ability of my conceptual mind to come up with accurate information. Nevertheless, my conceptual mind does give me all kinds of you know. Pleasant explanations. So here we've now, in my conceptual mind, I have like in our conversation come up with a pleasant explanation for what is the mystic, right? Well, I don't have a pleasant explanation for what death is. I don't have a pleasant explanation for how how uh the end of all conceptualization works out. Right? <laughs> <laughs> it's off the charts. You know what I mean? It's not I mean of course now I could myself and I could, you know, talk about heaven or I could talk about rebirth and all those things could be, uh, you know, conceptualizations that would sweep away the question, but not really, you know, I, I could never believe in those things as, I mean, I could, I could believe in them as, you know, useful teachings and so on and so on, but I could never believe in them as solving this question. Of, of death uh, and may, maybe it's because of my tremendous Western bias, you know, as a believing in the uh, organizing principle of being a person who's having all these thoughts about death or anything else. Maybe it's that, uh, maybe it's being a modern person and as, as we said earlier, not having too much of an ability to do uh, allegorical thinking Maybe it's that, but whatever it is, uh, if I find it very hard to, uh, it's not that I'm a frightened of it or dreading of it or anything like that. It's not; it doesn't feel emotional. It feels more perplexing than anything else. Uh, this, this, this being human, which means dying, is very perplexing to me.
1: I asked this partly because I had a friend over. Uh, and uh, her dog was here and she remarked the dog's getting old. And I said, I don't think he thinks in those terms. I think the dog okay. thinks that I'm getting stiff and I can't move the way that I used to maybe. He doesn't think in terms of getting old. No. Probably, I mean, don't know for sure. Um, so what has the conceptual mind done for us here? <laughs>
4: you mean in this life? in this world?
1: Well, creating this mystery of death in the, I mean, because, right?
4: Yes. Is it, well, interesting. Um,
1: I mean, as, as Norm was talking, I was thinking of you, because uh, Stuart, because Norman was describing what is a uh, a discontinuity <laughs> mm-hmm. that death presents us with, and this puts us right into the realm of math and physics, of course.
4: Right yeah i but i think for us the question of death is a different I, I mean if i look at people who aren't engaged in the mystical project um i see a lot of the conceptualization around death is uh framed in avoidance and uh not framed in terms of uh uh acceptance or confrontation or uh engagement with and Uh, Again, I've I've been quoting Gurdjieff a lot here uh, for some reason, uh, uh, but at the end of his tales, the question comes up, what would would be the cure for the egoism of the uh, human species? And his response is to have implanted within us an organ, which would always give us the awareness of the immediacy and the the reality of the uh, impending death of ourselves. And everyone that we're uh, with, and and I think that that in a way, you know, y- you talked earlier about how uh, preparing to die, but not just the big death, but to prepare to die every moment. And it, it seems like we've been talking about that in a large sense, you know, that the death death for us when you confront that is change. Things are gonna change, you can't hold on to anything and anything I grasp will slip through my fingers uh, that I'm in free fall, that no matter what I think, I'm in free fall. And perhaps with, with, with the death of my form, that, that's, that sense of free fall will be what's left.
1: Mm. But we have no idea, do we?
4: Mm. By definition.
1: <laughs> so this is an example of the question that remains. Yes, <laughs> this
4: is exactly. I mean, but I, yeah, like what Norman said, I, I have, I have plenty. I, I have a very precocious mind, and so I have very uh, elaborate uh, explanations or even you know imaginations about what that what that experience would be like. But uh, uh, you know. It's, I can't there's no way I can know until I'm there
3: and isn't that amazing in itself yeah <laughs> but you see
1: this when we allow ourselves not only to think that but feel that I think our relationship with life changes and it changes in a way, um, I think maybe not for everybody, but I think for most people is that we become more understanding and more accepting of the ups and downs of life. They, are, they, they don't have the same, uh, we, we don't regard them as uh, determinants in, <clears throat> the, in the same way. And I, I think this refers back again to what Norm was saying, that the, reintroducing or or in your terminology, Stuart, having an organ an organism in us that reminds us of this. Uh this is how we, we, we move actually into a fuller relationship with life, I think, and and, and in so doing uh become less ideological and less uh grasping at uh, certainty uh and that in turn i think uh, 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 allows a greater understanding of other people and uh, and more flexibility in our relationships with them and not just at the individual level but i think at the at the, the way society is organized and at political level I, I i see so much i think rob you said this earlier that uh So much of what 's going on in politics is just a refusal to acknowledge death of any kind and uh, and it becomes very problematic it, it actually causes more death <laughs> yeah.
2: well i i uh, you know the um the Gurjithian formulation that, that Stuart just repeated a few minutes ago about being aware of my own impending death and the impending death of everyone that I meet. Ever, it's the latter one that I think people easily um, elide. Um, And so, so you know, I'm I I spend a lot of time in in our bookstore, and people come and go. It's kind of like the Midnight Diner. Except I'm only making tea for them. <laughs> not we'll not make uh, any not tea they want, as
4: long as we have the, the least. <laughs> <Yeah, exactly.
2: laughs> right, that's right. Anyway, uh, but 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 occasionally I actually have, as people depart from the store, and it might be someone I know quite well, or it might be someone that a uh, totally new customer, someone who may or may not ever come back into the door again. I I have. It, it's a sense of the realization of the fragility, but more than the fragility of our connection. It's, uh, which, which, which resonates for me as, as being at least to some extent, um, what Gertrude was talking about when we realized that, that everyone we know will die. So, so one of the things that we do in our in our practice is to do readings for the dead I'm engaged in uh, i just finished there was a, a a lovely uh woman who would come to our come into our store with her her caregiver because she was in a wheelchair over a period of over a decade and she died i guess it would be uh forty fifty fifty uh, Seven days, days ago, to... um, because I was doing 40, 49 days of reading, and yesterday I did the one week, you know, so it's 40, you know, a, a reading every day for 49 days, every and, week for seven weeks, every right, month for seven right, months, right. and every year for seven years, yeah. And and ever. and uh, and one of the things that I've added to the to our readings was a was um, something that our teacher um used which was a, a formulation when engaging with another person, I am that I am, thou art that I am. Mm-hmm. And when I do that, in, I, am that I, am. I am that I am, thou art that I am. Okay. And when I do that with, <clears throat> because I mean, and we, we, you know, we try to have a picture of the person to, to, uh, on the altar when i'm when i'm doing this practice and it's a very i I still find a renewal of connection at least on my end because that's all i can speak to really um and sometimes my mind suggests or my emotions suggest to me that there's something on the other end too but i of course i can't really know that in one sense and yet um that that sense of continuing presence or connection is is uh has a sweetness to it that that um that is is very powerful. So I think this is um I mean that's an ongoing question for me. There's no answer um as far as I can tell in this body, but uh we'll see what we'll see what
4: happens after. The question of the uh connection after death is a it- what do you mean
2: the the question of whether the connection that i have with the person who walks out the door um is of the same quality as the connection that i have with someone who has died
4: ah.
3: mm-hmm. i'm having a a deja vu moment because i i think we we have discussed this the four of us have we not in one of our previous <laughs> I guess you always come around to death whenever you're talking about yeah. spirituality, but uh, this sounds familiar to me. But but I know what you're saying, and I, I think that's part of the mystery of it all, is that I also share this feeling of being in connection with the dead through right. my inner life. Uh, and, and it doesn't feel like it's just my idea of the person. It really feels like it's the, it's the person mm-hmm. in connection with me in some other way. Which doesn't make any sense either, Uh, but certainly a different way, for sure, from the way that they were when they were uh, alive. But yeah, yeah, and all there. I think the many practices in different traditions for staying in touch with those who've gone on is uh, that's very powerful dimension to any tradition. Yeah.
4: Yeah. One one aspect of the practice of readings that I found is. Sometimes someone I know somewhat casually, uh, uh, dies like, uh, last year, almost a year ago, uh, uh, a supplier, a uh, 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 head of a company that we were buying products from had a motorcycle accident and died on a completely unexpectedly. And I, I just had this impulse. I should do readings for him mm. because it was kind of like, who else is going to do this? Yeah. Yeah and you, one of the
3: one, things or, or anything or specific readings
4: it, it yeah we have a set of readings that we do so it's a, a you know so as rob said we'll do we'll do the prayers and there's a guidance that's kind of a bardo guidance uh and 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 we kind of weaved it with prayers from our tradition some of the things we got from uh our friend jim out of the buddhist tradition mm-hmm. and but the thing i wanted to remark on is i find this when i do readings uh uh, that when this person died it 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 was a shock to all these people that I worked with because of and 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 people had this moment of kind of reflecting on this yeah. and what I find about doing the readings you know like for forty nine days is the half life of most people 's reactivity to death is very short
3: yeah.
4: <laughs> and and it 's like I find like. You know, I'm remembering, I'm making a choice to remember this person and to connect with this person in whatever way that I can connect with them. And everyone else is kind of forgotten.
3: Yeah, right. <laughs> and,
4: and that's what I appreciate about the readings. It kind of it forces us to remind ourselves of death, um, and, and change at that, that level. Well,
1: I'm, I'm really, I hadn't, I didn't know you did these readings. In the Tibetan tradition, things tend to be terribly formalized. So you do uh, you know, 49 days, uh, you, ideally you do what's actually a fairly elaborate ritual um, for 49 days, but that's, uh, that, that's in a monastic setting and not terribly practical. But there's a uh, Jewish custom also, isn't there, steward of uh, lighting a candle regularly? So
4: uh so I don't know that uh, because I I wasn't raised in that tradition but uh, uh,
3: right. uh yeah yeah there is uh, the the Jewish uh mourning custom is actually very wise and very beautiful. Uh it the for the family members uh and close in relatives the first week after a death you abandon your life you you sit on a low bench, you don't shave, you don't shower, mm. you cover the mirrors over with cloth, you don't feed yourself, you don't eat, people bring you food, and for a week you just abandon yourself to your grief, and then the community comes to your house <clears throat> several times a day to have a short service in which the prayer for the dead is said, and you say it as a mourner. And then after the first seven days, there's a 30-day period in which you uh, have various restrictions on your behavior because you're still in deep mourning, but now you move back into your life and you feed yourself and you go to work and all that. And then for 11 months, uh, you say this prayer, you go to the synagogue in the community and three times a day, theoretically, you say this prayer, which is part of every service ever. You say this prayer as a mourner. And then uh, at the eleven, at, and, and uh, yeah, there's a, there's a candle that burns for seven days, the whole initial period. And then after that, on certain holidays and on the anniversary of the death, you light a candle every single year for the rest of your life. So that there's a sense of ongoing connection to the person forever. Yeah.
1: Well, the thing, I mean, listening to this, um, I think I think it would be quite wonderful actually if in our respective circles, we instituted some kind of ritual along these lines where there's an ongoing recognition of people who've died, which means there'll be an ongoing recognition of death in one's, you know, the place of death in one's life. Yeah. And I'm I I think that could have a very beneficial effect, both for the individual and for the society as a whole.
4: That's uh yeah yeah, very very interesting idea and one that we can take up in later conversations. But um uh, But because this conversation
2: thi- is about to die, all, because- all things our, our, have to come to our, an our, end.
4: Our, uh, and we our have time uh, is
2: uh, <laughs> time, time continues to pass. Believe it or not. Continues.
4: The sun is in a different location than when we started, but
1: uh, you're illusion at this point, Rob.
4: But <laughs> I, I definitely want just want to express my appreciation for uh, both of you taking the time. That uh, this, this has been a very deep and uh, conversation. It's been, been
1: beautiful. It's been beautiful for yeah, me. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, I really I, appreciate,
4: I really it. appreciate
1: oh, it. Well, I, I've got an awful lot out of it. I want to thank both of you for hosting it and your contributions and, and for Norm, uh, many contributions. I've got a lot out of it, so thank you all very much.
4: Well, I look forward to when we all can have dinner together sometime.
3: Exactly. Yeah, I, I hope that's <laughs> happening. I hope so. I hope so. <laughs> thank you so much, all of you. Take care of yourselves. All right. Thank you.
2: Same, to you. Same to you. Okay. All right.
0: You have been listening to The Mystical Positivist. This is your host, Stuart Goodnick. This week on the show, we featured a pre recorded conversation with Zoketsu Norman Fisher and Ken McLeod, framed by the two questions whether mystics or mystically inclined practitioners have responsibilities to society and the world, and if so, what might those responsibilities be, and of the great spiritual questions, for which ones have we found the answers and for which ones do the questions remain? Thank you for joining us once again for The Mystical Positivist. Podcasts of all our shows can be found at www.mysticalpositivist.blogspot.com, as well as commentary and discussion of topics of interest to the show. Also, please send comments and feedback to mysticalpositivist at gmail.com. Join us again next Saturday.